The vibration of change, that magical place where life shifts from struggle to ease, from stagnation to forward movement, from old ways of being to new ways of becoming. Yes, it can seem rather elusive to get there, but when you are in it, you feel it down to your very core, and it can positively affect everything in your life, from your relationships to your health and well-being, from your career path to your abundance, from the quality of your inner connection to the fullness of your self-expression. Here on The Christine Upchurch Show, we explore ways to get into that vibration of change with experts in the fields of consciousness, psychology, spirituality, health, healing, and science. Are you ready to step into your vibration of change? Welcome, everybody. I'm so grateful you're joining us here today on The Christine Upchurch Show. You might be listening live in the Seattle area on 1150 AM KKNW or perhaps live anywhere around the world on transformationtalkradio.com or on Facebook Live on my professional page um, or after the fact on christineupchurch.com or one of the dozens of podcasts that sends up. But wherever and whenever, I think you're going to be really grateful you joined me here today because um, I have a guest here and I have to tell you, when we booked this guest, I literally did a happy dance and I appreciate all of our guests. But I felt like um, this is somebody I've been longing to have a deep conversation with. And you're going to be grateful you're listening today. But before I move forward with that, I want to say, first of all, thank you to Kyle for doing what she does behind the scenes to allow these, these guests to appear on the show. And Benny at KKNW and Olivia. Hi, you two. Hello, hello. Hi there, Christine. Thank you. Thanks for taking care of the technology. So, Benny, are your twins excited about Christmas? Oh, they're super excited, but probably not as excited as you are uh, for today, just uh, <laughs> as well, you wanted to do a happy dance, and now you teased me because I really want to see it, but yeah. I might have to wait. <laughs> okay, yes, just a moment, though, Benny. Okay. <laughs> Our guest today is Professor David E. Martin. He's a businessman, an author, a storyteller, an inventor, a global foresight advisor, father, friend, and creator of the MCAM CNBC IQ 100 Index. He's, he's amazing in a variety of, of realms. He specializes in putting humanity back into humans and business. He creates real transformation from the inside out. And he shows and teaches people how to be the difference that makes the difference. And he has a, a, a deep passion for that in a variety of ways. And, and we're going to be you know hearing about that. David's secret of success globally is what he calls the wobble effect. The problem we see superficially is not the problem. Oh gosh, I'm so curious about this. He shows us to identify the real issues and access our innate wisdom. We change from the inside out, as I know listeners of the show understand, and that allows us to not only change our external life, but also help change the world. And he wants to encourage people to really fully live. I would like to welcome our guest today, Dr. David E. Martin. Hi, David. Chris, so grateful to be here. Thank you. Thank you for hosting us. And I love the snowflake on your necklace. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> I, I use I use the the sacred geometry of that six point pattern in all of our teaching and lectures. So it's wonderful to see the image on your um, on your necklace as we have this conversation. It'll keep us focused and grounded on reality. That's great. That's really interesting. That's I didn't realize that you and I had something in common about sacred geometry. Um, you know, I'm a former. I was a math major in college. Did graduate work in statistics. Worked as a statistician for a number of years before going into healing after having my own um, 
self-healing. But um, along the way, I and some other people have downloaded sacred geometric structures that help people to transform. And so I love sacred geometry. I, I, I didn't yeah. realize I did too. That's great. Yeah, it's it's something I think, you know, we've we've come to accept a, a worldview that suggests that somehow truth is adjudicated through words. And we long ago lost the value of symbols, the value of the, the ways in which reflection shapes our consciousness. And so it's really key to think about reintroducing the importance of symbols, the importance of shapes, the importance of things that evoke different levels of consciousness. So I just can't look at that six-pointed star without thinking about, about the importance of that conversation. And speaking of how words don't necessarily convey truth. I think that um, that's a really important conversation to have right now. Like um, I'm creating a series of books called the top 20 myths. And the first one's about spirituality. Mm-hmm. We go about life um, and we have these basic assumptions and the, the verbiage of our culture, the verbiage of our you know, immediate reality kind of reinforces our beliefs you teach so profoundly about how we need to question everything. So give us some examples of what we should question. Well, so let's play with words just for a minute because it's so much fun. If you think of the Rosetta Stone and you think about the fact that we now think we understand about 3,500 years of Egyptian history because of roughly 126 words. Now, think about that. Take anything that you can think of, 126 words of anything you can think of. I I like to play with Fools Rush In, the very famous Elvis song. Let's say that's the only artifact you have, some, some, some multiple language translation of Fools Rush In. And then tell me that you would understand everything about 3,500 years of culture Mm. based on the 126 words in Fool's Russian. Right. That's actually what we've done. We've we've done that to 3,500 years of human history. We've said that we can decipher all of it based on, you know, as something as silly as an Elvis song. Now, the reason I use that is because, as you know, it was the Pharaoh of Memphis that actually is attributed to having the Rosetta Stone. Therefore, it makes perfect sense to have the King of Memphis be my metaphor. But you get the joke. (laughs) The, The joke is that we pretend to understand using this wonderful mythology of 26 characters, the average human being who is roughly educated as something in the order of 68,000 words that are available to them. But think about how constraining that about are more than 68,000 interesting interactions of a cell with a nerve and with a muscle. And there are more interactions of life than we have words to describe it. So what we do is we, we encode this beautiful complexity of life into this pathetic technology called language and then say that we have understanding. 
And the fact is that we need to re-examine this question of what is understanding. It has to be more than the artifacts of words. We have to have more than 26 degrees of freedom to express the complexity of our thoughts, much less the beautiful complexity of the universe. But too many of us get trapped in this illusion that somehow or another that's enough. And And the limiting thing is that when we conflate consciousness with communication, we actually miss the genius of what consciousness is, which is the awakening, the subtle awakening that occurs within each and every moment where if we're open to it, we can see instruction, we can see confirmation, we can see criticism, we can see all of these things happen, but we can only do it if we're not obsessed with having to make it land in the blog post or in the podcast or in the whatever it winds up being. It is a richer world than that, and we harm ourselves by putting it in too tight of a box. And I found that um, the the box goes beyond the words. The box has to do with um, where we are observing the moment from. Yes. Uh, I had done a TEDx talk about um, the, the benefits of feeling like an outsider. And it's the sort of thing where it that to us can feel terrible because we're tribal beings, right? And yet it's a very powerful place to be um, because it we don't have preconceived notions then. We, we're able to kind yeah. of step outside of our, our perspective momentarily at least to experience it. So how do we go about in, in that moment to moment basis to experience you know all that is as, as we can access it through human form um, without sort of keeping it in that box that you talk about? So Kim and I teach a course, what we, we refer to as integral accounting, breathing enterprise and fully living. And in the course, the core of what we teach is that every moment should be observed through six very explicit perspectives. Okay. The first perspective is what is the matter and energy that is present? So what are the physical artifacts? What are the things that are moving? What's the energy in the system? Mm-hmm. And that's one sixth of the observation. The second one-sixth of the observation is the context, which we call custom and culture. What are the frames through which we are seeing a thing? Who gave us the notion of color? Who gave us the notion of shape? Who gave us the notion of time? Who gave us the notion of perspective? So what is the lens that we're applying on matter and energy to say that a tree is a tree, a bird is a bird, a deer is a deer, a car is a car? Like, what's that? And more importantly, whose value is being served by us agreeing with it. So that's the second of one sixth wedge. The third is knowledge. And knowledge is a funny one. Knowledge is the transmissivity of information. It's not just the what I have up here. It's what I have the capacity to share and what has been shared with me. Knowledge we can think of very simply is the stories that we've told and the stories that have been told to us. Uh What has been transferred? So when we observe a thing, what are the stories that we're using as references within our reality? The fourth wedge is what we call value or money. We can think of it as hierarchy. What level of priority have we placed on one thing above another thing? So what's the actor? What's the supporting actor? What's the stage? What are all of those things? How do we adjudicate what is more important or what is less important? So what is the hierarchy that's involved? 
The fifth wedge is technology, which is what are the consensus experiences that are being reinforced so that we're actually seeing things the same way or we're interpreting things the same way or what are the perspectives that we wrap around the thing. And right. the sixth wedge is what we call well-being, which is the optimal performance. Is the thing that we're looking at optimal or is it suboptimal? Now, I say if we, th if we slow down to the speed of six dimensions, and I use that <laughs> phrase quite often, what happens is we invite a level of consciousness where everything that we see, everything we perceive, everything we engage, everything we value is seen for its essence, not its reflected artifact. Oh, I love that. And if we it dive has... into this speed of six dimensions, uh -huh. what happens is also we move out of reflexive thinking. We actually examine things for their nuance. Mm -hmm. We don't dismiss things because they feel similar. We actually go, yeah, this is mostly the same, but there's something different. Uh -huh. This is an invitation, a technology, a way to enter into engagement with the world where you discipline yourself to actually examine the essence of you and then the essence of your experience. And it goes to your observation in your TEDx talk, which is it allows you then also to triangulate by having a perspective that's outside, if you will, uh -huh. you have the ability to move and look at the exact same object or the exact same experience through multiple perspectives. And anytime we understand those multiple perspectives, we are by definition going to have a deeper awareness of the consciousness of that thing and our own consciousness in our engagement. Right. And I think about um, each of, of these six dimensions, if you will, um, having and working within them with clarity without prejudice must take a lot of practice. I just think about like the the knowledge, you know, that's based on stories. Stories are biased. I, I think about the game yeah. that kids play, you know, the game of telephone, you, you whisper something into somebody's yeah. ear, go down a line, and eventually the last person says what, what the first person supposedly said. It was so far different than what it actually yeah. was. Um, yeah. Plus people have emotional bias that they integrate into their stories and, and their own reflexive uh, perspective that they integrate into the stories. Well, think about this, Chrissy. We both share a common both history and experience with statistics. One of the assumptions that we make in statistics is that somehow there's some sort of kind of purity or transcendence in, in numbers. There's such, a, such precise things. Mm -hmm. But let's take the concept very simply of a year. We can carelessly say a year is 365 days. Mm -hmm. And most of us would just kind of blow it off and say, oh, well, yep, that's what it is. But it, it actually isn't. It's 364 and a, 365 and a quarter, right? We have right, the leap right. year thing. So we have, we have that little nuance, which is kind of important. Uh -huh. But are all years the same years? And it turns out that if we look at it the right perspective, a year could be defined as the passage of seasons. Mm -hmm. The exact same word may, in fact, have a divisor of four elements, the seasons. It may have a divisor of number of days. It may have a, a context in terms of genealogy or in terms of mortality, which is a fraction of a life. 
So the exact same thing, right? Think about this. The year between when you were four and five versus for you and I, the, the difference between, say, 49 and 50, uh-huh. were those the same moments? And it turns out that they're not the same moments, either. even though chronologically we would, we would say they might occupy the same space. Uh-huh. And the mistake, even when we get to the precision of numbers and measurement, is we often take it out of context. A year that I might be struggling with depression or a job loss or a whatever else, maybe a very different year than a year when everything is going swimmingly, right? It may feel different. And, and so I think sometimes we get caught up in the tyranny of precision, but we lose the mercy of context. Right. And I think we need to hold those sometimes in tension because most of us think that at least something is objective fact. And the fact is even fact is subjective. Yeah. The, the other thing about statistics that is a basic assumption that I've never believed, and that is that there's underlying randomness. Yes, exactly. And it, it's, a, it's a great way to kind of um, work within the, the, the framework of statistics to look for causality, to, to look for effects. Um, but I don't for a moment believe in randomness. Well, and then the comedy of randomness is that if we think of the most classic linear equation, y equals mx plus b, where b is unmeasured error or random occurrence, I find it absolutely comical that that's the only thing we measure to five significant digits of precision. The thing that we know nothing about, we measure the most precisely, right? (laughs) We have a next to our x variable, we might have 0.28 or 0.76, but the b, the unknown, the random error that doesn't fit our model, we measure to five significant digits. Uh-huh. And, I, and I laugh at that because right. the idea that we can precisely measure the part that we have no idea what it is, is actually an indictment in the carelessness we're projecting on the universe. Because to your point, is that random error or is that a measure of our ignorance and our complacency? Right. <laughs> and I think that if we actually called it the latter, very few statistics professors would be very happy because what they would realize is that they're teaching a pattern of indoctrination and causality rather than teaching a method to understand. It's mm-hmm. actually a method to confirm a bias, not a method to understand. And those are two very important distinctions. When I was in graduate school, um, the, the area of research I was working, I was, I was in like a mathematical department, you know, creating theorems and, and stuff. And um, I was in robustness. And you know, robust statistics basically says, okay, so if the assumptions aren't quite met, if things are not as we have this preconceived notion they are, are you getting a good answer? Are we gonna be getting yes. a good answer? And there are, there are different approaches you can take so that, I mean, it's still, you're still doing having blinders on because we don't really understand all of our assumptions or the inherent biases, those sorts of things. But at the very least, there are attempts out there to come up with better answers based right. on these things that we don't understand. Yeah. But, but I think, I think in, in totality, one of the things that is a beautiful path to consciousness is to realize that no matter what the structure we're imposing, no matter what the model we're imposing, we are always invited 
to take this step back and say, what are the assumptions that we're making? And if we take that step, and that's why I like using the six dimensional model, because in the six dimensional model, you're always invited to say, you might've anticipated this set of variables, but you forgot this set of variables. And so it, it, it takes us past that simple kind of quadratic, you know, factor analysis, and it turns it into this more beautiful expression of, can you slow down to the speed of six dimensions and deeply settle into a perception that will inform conscious decisions and will give rise to conscious questions rather than getting trapped in the reflex of projecting a reified illusion on reality. Yeah. It's funny you said the word illusion and one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, people talk about how the truth hurts. And I've been saying for a long time, it's not the truth that hurts. It's facing the illusions that we've been buying into yes. that we have to like process yes. and let go of. Because those illusions are abundant. Yeah. And, and, and there's a lot of mercy that's required, right? Because we, we, we live in a world of credential and we live in a world of consensus and we live in a world of confirmation. And so anytime we have any of those three C's challenged, it's not really the criticism of it that we're worried about. It's our identity that we're worried about. Because if those assumptions go off, then who am I? What am I? What relevance do I have? Right. So, you know, I think about there's so many things that, that are connected to identity. And one of them is our tribe. Right. It might be our family. It might be um, our career colleagues. It, it might be our Facebook friends, you know, whatever it is. Can you talk a little bit about tribalism, its benefits and um, its downsides? So I have had the great fortune and I am so, so abundantly grateful that I have lived with communities of persistence around the world, largely in the Pacific, some in South America, some in Africa. And I use that term very precisely. A lot of people use the term indigenous, or they might use another term. I like communities of persistence simply because I like to acknowledge the fact that some people have actually kept their humanity going for quite a long time. And I think we have a lot to learn from them. Um, I have lived in actual, what we would call tribes. And I have spent a lot of time in tribes. And a couple of myths that I think were very important for me to understand through that living experience is, first of all, I've never met a tribe where the family was the atomic identity that we in a kind of more allegedly advanced society think it is. Children Mm -hmm. are everybody's children. Uh Siblings are everybody's siblings. Mothers and fathers are anybody who is in a caregiving role. Grandmothers and grandfathers are anybody who is in a wisdom role. And it's very fascinating to see inside of a actual tribe Uh that the identity is not about who you were born to. There was no enclosure of the property. There is no enclosure of the beingness. You are actually part of a thing. And so it's actually really beautiful to observe what it looks like to live in a world where you belong, but you do not belong by virtue of a relationship. You belong to the relationship. And those are two very, very different things. 
Say that again, because I want I want I'd like you to expand on that. What is the difference so, so, between those so two you things? You don't belong by virtue of the relationship. You are in fact embedded within the giant relationship. And what that simply means is that you play a role, and the role that you play is various to the context in which you're operating. So at a at a point in time, I'm a caregiver. At another point in time, I'm having care given to me. Right. And I could be at any moment in time, either one of those things. So I don't matriculate to the next. It's not like somehow or another, as I pass from, you know, childhood to adulthood, from adulthood to, you know, senior. It's not like I'm ever passing out of a role or into a role. I'm actually constantly invited to be aware of the context of the community that I'm touching at that moment. And if we think about the implications of that as beautiful, what we realize is that there's something about tribe that says that we should always be thinking our, of ourselves through the lens of what are we being asked to engage in the context we find ourselves wow. rather than saying, I'm going to wait for my relevance to be re required. And, and I, I think that, that if we look at the most beautiful attributes of tribal communities, that's probably for me the most precious because you're always aware of the fact you're always relevant to somebody. What a beautiful gift, always being relevant. We have, um, we have a, an overabundance of, of young people in particular, but I think people of all ages who really, really don't feel relevant don't feel yes. important, don't feel connected to the whole um, yes. in a significant way. And that's- And, and, and what a tragedy, right? What a tragedy. A tragedy. Yeah. Because, because if I have to look for my relevance, the likelihood I even have the tools that would be required to find that relevance is pretty much zero. I'm not going to know what to look for. I'm not going to know where to look. And so I need to be surrounded in an environment where I'm invited to constantly be refreshed in my engagement with what that reality experience is. And it's critical. Now, there's a downside. And, and I, I like to actually think of things through the lens of as complete a picture as possible. Yeah. But the downside is that there are very few tribes that I have ever experienced that celebrate innovation. I think that if you really examine the majority of tribal behavior, the majority of tribal behavior is built around maintaining some sort of status or consensus. Uh -huh. And so the challenge that presents is if there is a social challenge, if something new emerges that requires creative thinking, that requires a different perspective, many times tribes don't overly welcome something that's a highly divergent thought. In fact, yeah. they can get pretty nasty about it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think, well, I just right. think it's, it's important to balance this, this nostalgia of connectedness mm -hmm. for the temptation of maintaining inertia at the expense of innovation. Carolyn Mays long ago talked about um, how tribes evolve through you know, consciousness that um, yeah. essentially somebody has to leave the tribe. They may be, the, right. they're banished. Maybe they, they leave by choice um, and they go out 
separate from the tribe and evolve yeah. and then bring their new knowledge, wisdom, knowingness yes. back into the tribe to help it yes. evolve. Yeah. And, and I think that, I think that certainly if you look at a lot of communities around the world, one of the, one of the tragedies is that you hope people come back. You hope people bring that insight back into the community. Right. But but I would say all too often, my experience in communities around the world is that it's very common that once you leave that sense of, of attachment or accountability or stewardship to return sometimes doesn't have the robustness that you'd like it to have. Mm. And I think this all goes back to understanding that the place that we find ourselves is a place where it's critical to understand that we are the stewards of a lineage, no matter where we are. Right. And as that is the case, we also have accountability to make sure that we've contributed to making whatever next, whatever the next expression is, mm -hmm. it's incumbent on us to help make that a better expression. And I think when we have the awareness of that, it's great. And when we get seduced by the illusion of a better other, you know, the grass is greener. Uh -huh. When we get seduced by that illusion, I think we all lose. So, David, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about, um, I've got, you know, two sons, young men, and I talked to some of their friends as well. It seems like there are plenty of people these days, particularly in our, our current experience of how society has changed where they're feeling like they're not sure they can contribute anything. They're not yeah. sure what their path is. What's your advice for young people to find that place of contribution, to find the, the, the inspiration to bring some their uniqueness to the whole? Well, that's a, that's a big question. And I'm going to unpack a couple elements of it. If we think about my familial tradition on my father's side. We, our family was Mennonite and go back a couple of generations, old or Mennonite. We uh -huh. farmed with horses. These hands have actually milked cows as much as people Great. go, what? You, you know, I know how to hitch a horse. I know how to plow a field with a plow. Like uh -huh. those are all things that are my lived experience. If you think about what power was or what energy was in my community even when i was growing up we had water wheels we had wind turbines mm -hmm. we had generators of all sorts we had um we had spring houses refrigeration under the ground where the cold okay. water spring actually kept things cold um we canned things um we harvested things we did all sorts of things one of the tragedies of the last probably 25 years is that we have reduced the flexibility of what variables we can manipulate down into digital reality and mm -hmm. down into it has to fit into an outlet and it has to plug into a wall. And the fact of the matter is people say we've advanced technologically, but I would say that 150 years ago on an Amish or a Mennonite farm, when if you needed mechanical energy, you used mechanical things. If you needed, you know, steam energy, you used steam. If you needed wind energy, you used wind. If you needed any, we actually were more advanced when we had a plurality of sources with which we interacted. Uh -huh. 
Now we're trying to say, be relevant, but make it an app. Yes. Well, yes. here's a tiny thing. Apps aren't relevant. And, and I'm not saying there aren't relevant apps. I'm just saying that right. apps as a construct are, are, are not a plurality of things. If we go back and look at the inventions pre the Second World War, mm-hmm. we had things like, are you ready for this? Flight, internal combustion, you know, telephones. Like we had things that were really interesting. Now we have iPhone 11s, which were iPhone 10s, which were iPhone 9s or 8s right. or 7s. So, so what's happening to a young person in this environment is we are forcing the cumulative creativity of a generation into a smaller and smaller and smaller platform. And the platform has to be electronic and it has to be digital. Right. And what I encourage every young person to do is re-embrace the analog. Do something where you re-engage the non-electric. And that's not some sort of Luddite, you know, dictum rave rave against society. It's actually for your own well-being. Realize that the aperture of your experience has to get out of the two-dimensional world of artificial projected, you know, visual digital technology. And it has to get into the analog experience of living. I'll give you an example of what we've done. For many, many years, I've taken groups of people to Reynosa, Mexico. Now, Reynosa is a what's called a NAFTA town. It's on the other side of the border from McAllen, Texas. Uh And what we do is we go into the slums and we build houses, literally build concrete block houses, and we do all kinds of stuff. Now, the funny thing is, on the first two days, every young person who goes on that trip sees things for the absence of things. They don't see phones, they don't see TVs, they don't see the internet, they don't see all these things. They go, oh my gosh, how do you live without? Christine, on the third day, a miracle happens. Because somebody about lunchtime on the third day will always make the observation, I don't know why these people seem so happy. They seem happy. (laughs) They're living in a slum, but they seem happy. Well, I can tell you what the miracle is because the miracle isn't a miracle. What it is, is perspective. What happens is people start realizing that, oh, maybe the fact that they know how to mix cement with a shovel, the fact that they know how to lay a block wall that goes straight up and down, Uh the fact that they know how to draw the plumb line, the the fact that they know how to level a building, the, the fact that they know how to you know, roof something so that hurricanes can't blow it off by twisting rebar a particular way. All of those facts become really interesting. And before long, by the fourth or fifth day, we have things like love affairs get started, where a boy or girl from Virginia winds up falling in love with a boy or girl from the slums. And and Uh what, what is that about? What that's about is an opening of humanity by experiencing the analog reality. What happens is that the illusion spell is broken. And by entering into a space where quite literally by the end of the week, you see the house your hands built, you can never go back to irrelevance. Wow, that, that's amazing. That's so amazing. One of the things you're talking about through, uh, with your six dimensions was the, our cultural lens. And 
you're talking about an experience within the context of, you know, going from digital to analog, but you're also talking about cultural differences. And yes. I think about how my life has been so greatly enhanced traveling to various places in the world because yeah. we think humans are humans, you know, we, we, we take for granted that people interact with each other in a particular way, that, that life it looks a certain way. Um, and when you get into a different culture, it's just like shockingly different. Yeah. Well, I, I've lectured for many years at the Indian Institute for Management in Ahmedabad. And I've said to many people that if any American tells me that they understand India, all I know is they haven't been often enough. Uh -huh. For years I would go, and, and the first time it's a novelty, you're in India, you see elephants in the streets and you see cows wandering around and you see all this uh -huh. kind of stuff. So the first time is a novelty and anything is interesting. And then the second time you go to the temples and you see all the traditions and and thankfully, I've been there on festivals, so you get to see the beautiful saris that the women wear and the glowing lights and everything, and it's it's magical. But the longer I've spent in India, the less I understand. And I've mm. said to a number of people, I think it's because you have to be born into the frequency of India to understand India. You have to actually mm -hmm. have a cultural context that takes you not from observer participant role, but to the embedded role. And what I've been able to do is actually learn vast amounts of wisdom about humanity by unknowing what I'm observing. I'll give you a wonderful example. I had an experience of seeing a number of people in Ahmedabad who were very clearly impoverished by every stretch of the imagination, health-wise, financially. We would call them homeless and we would call them, you know, some sort of extreme levels of poverty. Yeah. And I asked a group of the students I was with what their emotional or moral engagement to that experience is when they see that kind of austere poverty. And what I encountered was something that I found absolutely incredulous, which is what appeared to be almost callous neglect saying, well, that's, that's what they're living through. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, here, I've got all these privileged students and they're telling me that this is just kind of the, that's what happens. And that's the reality people have to deal with. So I decided to, to cross the street, if you will, metaphorically and quite literally, I did cross the street and I sat down oh. with, with some of the individuals who were sitting under a cloth tent. And that was the sum total of their worldly possessions. Uh -huh. And, and I asked them, you know, what's this about? Ironically, I was met with an answer I was not prepared for, which is they were articulating that this was their journey to come to terms with suffering, to come to terms with lack, to come to terms with feeling disenfranchised. And their life purpose was not aspiring to the house, not aspiring to change their experience. Uh -huh. Their life purpose was to find a path where they could live in resonance with their experience. And every bit of me wanted to reject that. Every bit of me wanted to say, no, you should, you should have a house and you should this and you should that. Uh -huh. and, and it was this beautiful experience of recognizing that both in the privileged students with whom I was having the conversation and with the individuals who reportedly would be classified as impoverished, 
both of them were sharing a worldview that said, how do I get responsible and coherent with my situation rather than spending my time aspiring to be in a different situation? Now, right. oh, that's I've encountered, huge. That, I've encountered that all over the world. And here's what I'm going to say. There is a, I don't know, maybe it's my Mennonite tradition coming through. Maybe it's my Judeo-Christian value system coming through. I don't know what it is. There's a part of me that says, I'm not willing to accept the poor you will always have with you as a justification to do nothing. But, but I will tell you that I learned a lot from people who allegedly were homeless and allegedly were poor and were telling me about what it's like to get coherent with your life and your values where you find yourself. And that's a really important lesson. That yeah. doesn't change the fact that I'll still go and build a house for somebody who doesn't have one. I'll still do that, but that's my system. That's my values. And it's not necessarily in response. And what it did for me was it transformed my experience. So I realized that when I built a house in Reynosa or in Iran or in <laughs> India or wherever I did, I was actually doing it to share my values, not to help someone else. And what a big emancipation that is. When you realize yeah. that, that impulse is right for you because it's what you're called to do, uh -huh. but don't expect someone else to necessarily feel that that is largesse on your behalf going towards them because it may be, but it also may be that you're satiating your own sense of purpose and your own sense of morality. And that, by the way, is not an indictment for or against being beautiful and kind and loving, uh -huh. but it frees you from expecting some sort of reciprocity of emotion or value or anything else because you are doing it because you are called to do it, not because somebody else told you that they needed it. And, and that just reminds me of how I will approach, whether it's a healing session or a mentoring session, it's it's really essential, I've learned, to let go of attachment to any kind of yes. outcome that I'm showing up as me offering what it is I have to offer. And it's not up to me to fix anything for anybody else, right? right? Because because that's, that's a codependent way of living. And it's also right. a, a way that is disempowering for those who are having whatever their experience is. Yeah, Keeping exactly. them from their coherence, saying there's something there's something wrong here that needs to be fixed as opposed to yeah. everything's perfect as it is and let's see what wants to shift if yeah. anything well and and the fact of the matter is you know i've i've dealt with emergencies around the world i i helped respond to hurricane mitch in honduras many many years ago there were real people who had real problems like broken bones and cuts and bruises and whatever else and in those instances my ability to actually move in and help fix and repair was something that I think both of us agreed on. Like if you have a broken bone and it's broken and you know, yeah. things are sticking out where they don't belong, fixing that is a pretty important thing. But I think we, we make a huge mistake in our, in our kind of postmodern, both spiritual and postmodern kind of awareness cultures of thinking that the removal of what we perceive to be a less than desirable state mm -hmm. That, that somehow or another we're entitled to project our belief system onto somebody else's experience. 
Right. And what I try to do is, and, and this is something Kim and I are deeply committed to in our workshops, is I want you to have the tools to examine your life. That's what I want you to have. Mm -hmm. If you have the tools to examine your life and you ultimately make the examination and go, well, yep, that's what I'm going to do and that's how I'm going to deal. Awesome. As long as you consciously engaged, I could mm -hmm. care less whether you fixed or didn't fix what I think would be optimal for you. Right. What I do care about is making sure that you understand that you must approach it through consciousness because that's important. But how you get to the conclusion of that journey is entirely your journey, regardless of how self-evident I think your better version is. Right. And, and like that's that's just one of those things where as a fixer, I love to fix things. And one of the greatest experiences of life is to realize there's nothing to fix most of the time. Uh-huh. Speaking of your workshops, before we run through this entire hour without you know, getting the chance to share this, how can people connect with you and how can they find out about what it is you offer? Yeah, so so we have a bunch of ways to do that. DavidMartin.world is where people find me. Um, the Art of Being Kim is where people find Kim. We talk about our workshops there on FullyLive.world. Um, but, but what we do is we have kind of three different programs that we run fairly routinely we have the fully live workshops which is a deep dive into understanding the agreements you made to come to this life mm -hmm. um, figuring out the who you really are at your core energetic level we have a thing called uh, breathing enterprise which is how we engage usually with enterprises or how we engage with you know endeavors that people find themselves drawn into Sure. And then integral accounting, which is kind of just what I would refer to as the basic tools for conscious living. Um, those things are things that we teach. And courtesy of COVID, thank you for, you know, having this bizarre year that we've had. Uh -huh. um, we've been able to spend a lot of time getting materials prepared for online versions of what used to be just um analog experiences of actual workshops. So uh -huh. we had um, a beautiful partner in Utah, James Perpera at um, Powerful You, who filmed a workshop and we turned that into 21 teaching modules. So we're about ready to launch a series which is going to allow people to participate in some of the content in an online interactive session. We're thinking probably about eight week uh, programs where we'll show some videos and then have some time of, of interacting with people on, um, on a uh, kind of Zoom style interview sure. session. And that's going to be something that we have uh, coming up here in the next few months. Great. Okay, so speaking of our current um, health situation, political <laughs> situation, yeah. I know that uh, you have played a key role because uh, of your knowledge and your experience with patents. Um, yes. In five minutes or less, can you sort of share your knowledge about, you know, a piece of the puzzle of what's been going on? Yeah, well, listen, I, I mean, what I try to do is help people explore where there is a deeper examination possible. Sure. And that is that beginning in 2003, officially in, in our company's first publication, our company MCAM, we published our first piece on the coronavirus and the RT-PCR manipulation in 2003. Okay. Um, most people 
really weren't paying much attention to this back in May of 2003, but we were. And our concern was that it became very clear very quickly that unlike other pathogens that we had seen emerge in the past, the rush to patent coronavirus was actually what we felt to be inappropriate. The hmm. idea that somehow or another this this what allegedly was a pathogen was suddenly the subject of hundreds and then became thousands. Now there's 5,100 patents on coronavirus. Um, and, and you just sit there and go, 5,100 patents on coronavirus, that, that doesn't sound right. There's something wrong when we have that much attention focused on what allegedly was a novel natural thing. Uh, okay, let me pause and for so, a second and ask David, how does that compare to patents on other types of pathogens? Oh, off by an order of magnitude. Okay. So there was a particular obsession with coronavirus and, and we've been monitoring for many, many years, all of the billions of dollars of research that have gone into amplification of spike proteins and amplification of certain parts of the coronavirus, which are particularly problematic to humans. And, and billions of dollars. Remember that the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, and when you hear that, you think, oh, these would be people who would be concerned with making sure people don't get sick. Uh -huh. But hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patents on how to amplify the pathogenicity of this material. Wow. There's something that feels wrong when you see that. And so sure. we have been publishing, we have been reporting on this for quite some time. And so it was no surprise to us when we started seeing a number of events around the world start to unfold. And we started saying, we know who we expect to see show up in this conversation because uh -huh. we've been monitoring them for a long time. Right. So we expected to see people who had the RT-PCR show up. We expected to see CDC step up. We expected to see Gilead Sciences bring remdesivir forward. We expected to see Moderna bring mRNA forward. We expected those things because we were watching it. Mm -hmm. And we were also watching the fact that those organizations seem to have disproportional influence on politicians and on public policy and on mm -hmm. public health and on a number of other things. So for us, the patents early on were an indicator of the who we were going to watch. Sure. But then we also started following the money, which is always an interesting proposition. Right. Because when you start following the money, you find out that this was never about public health. This was about a giant wealth transfer. And in, in fact, it has manifest exactly that. Th this is an unbelievable amount of enrichment. I mean, if you look at Moderna as an example, the senior executive team at Moderna has been cashing in stock on repeated stock sales as the public announcements of their alleged success go through the roof, the stock value goes through the roof, and rather than betting on their own future, they're liquidating their future. Now, when I see that as a person who's been involved in the markets for many, many years, I look at that and I go, eh, something's not adding up. When investors are exiting and profit-taking on the back of a public health crisis, it doesn't feel like a public health issue. It feels like a manipulation of the markets. Right. And 
whether it's a mix of those things, whether it's more one than the other is neither here nor there. The fact of the matter is the optics are terrible when you have somebody who is in the role like Anthony Fauci, who says something in public, the market drives those stocks up and all of a sudden the executives that are holding those stocks take money off the table. Yeah. That feels manipulative and it feels inappropriate because it is inappropriate. That's why it feels inappropriate. So what we've tried to do, as you know, is we've tried to share this perspective with the world so that others can actually do their own independent inquiry, look into these facts and realize that there are facts, not opinions. There mm -hmm. are facts that are available to people who seek to actually deepen their inquiry and deepen their understanding. Right. And the timing of when these things occurred are big ahas in my mind yes. uh, that, yeah. that yeah. indicate that things are not as were, you know, led to believe. Yeah, which, exactly. You know, so and it's, and, it's and I try always to be, I try to bring equanimity to this. What I try to do is say, when there are actual laws being broken, I like to point out which laws are being broken. But even uh -huh. then, what I'm not doing is I'm not, you know, saying we should take pitchforks into the town square and kill the beast. Like, <laughs> uh, what I'm trying to do is say, you know, like people don't know that patents are accessible, like people don't know financial information is accessible. Equally, people don't have a deep understanding of the law. So it's important, from my point of view, to make sure people are adequately informed to make their own decisions. Yeah. And I, I, we're running out of time here. I really wish that I had an opportunity to talk to you about freedom versus liberty, but I know that um, people will be able to find that video. I strongly encourage everybody to, um, to follow David Martin, David E. Martin on, um, on YouTube. You've got a great YouTube channel and you and Kim do a weekly program as well yes. that's absolutely fascinating, but also low key. Like, you know, sometimes I turn it on while I'm fixing dinner or something, you know, we're hanging out <laughs> together. Uh, and, I, and I really appreciate that you are taking your gifts and doing what you feel you need to do because it does have this positive ripple effect because it's, it's illuminating truth. It's making us question, you know, life versus living kind of thing. Um, and it's, uh, it's very powerful and I'm, I'm so impressed and I'm so grateful for what you guys are doing. Well, Kim and I are, are deeply grateful that we've had such a beautiful community surrounding it. And Chris, thank you for taking this time. It's an honor to be here with you. Thank you to your producers for making this a reality. And we look forward to the next time we can chat. Yeah. And, and I will, you know, you're, you're always invited back. We could talk for hours. I'm also looking forward to being a part of one of your courses, and I hope to do it in an analog as opposed to digital one, one day. That'll happen. We'll make that happen. <laughs> Sounds good. And I want to thank you all for joining us here today. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to empower yourself to step further into your vibration of change, please visit my website at christineupchurch.com, where you can learn more about my insights, upcoming events, and private sessions.